So we're in Luke 19, 28 through 44. So let me tell you a story first of one of my favorite historical figures. And I say historical loosely because she's still alive. She's just really old. And that's Queen Elizabeth II. So Queen Elizabeth II inherited the crown while on a royal tour that was supposed to take six months. They were touring all the British Commonwealth countries. Unfortunately, the tour was cut short when she received a call in her, in her Kenyan cottage um, while in the country of Kenya, informing her that her father, the king, had passed away. So she cut the tour short and went home. Um, she returned home the sovereign. Yes. It's a little warm in here. Could you? Let's see what you're I had two questions. Was this tour? Was this was was this a was this a cruise? It was Ed there. No, okay. no cruise. Ed was not there. It's a plane flight. Any? Let me let me continue. Um, the weight of the crown when she returned home now became part of her life, and she was determined to bear it well. Soon after her coronation. She decided to finish the royal tour that she started before she became queen. Um, one of the places she visited was Australia. There she would spend 58 days. Mind you, not on holiday. She was a guest and um, a servant of the state in some ways. Um, she would be there 58 days. She would travel 13,000, not 100,000 miles while there. She made 35 flights on the continent of Australia during those 58 days. Most of her days were spent in travel, clearly, and then at one function or another that was thrown for her by a town, a city, a group, many of which happened on the same day. It is said that when she was in Australia for those 58 days, 70% of the population of Australia attended one of her functions. The Australian told the Telegraph, uh, one Australian told the Telegraph this, let's face it, the country's gone queen crazy. The Telegraph website reports that 40,000 turned up to see her lay a wreath, 50,000 sang Land of Hope and Glory for her when she reached Brisbane. And when she and the Duke of Edinburgh went to church, 3,000 people sat outside. The royal party switched to a train for part of the tour, and so frequently was their car halted by locals shouting, Good on you, Phil, or good on you, Liz. At one function, the queen was presented at one function. The queen was presented with 161 bouquets. And at another, she was given five tons of dried fruit. <laughs> As a gift. Man, what a, what a gift. It tends, to be, it tends to be what happens when a sovereign arrives, right? Everyone goes, as the one Australian said, queen crazy. But what would happen when the sovereign arrived? The rightful king of the world, the king of Israel, the ruler of the land, the sky, and the ocean, the one that could make even the rocks worship him. What would happen? We're at that scene here in Luke. It has led all the way to Jerusalem, and we are here at Palm Sunday. So this is Luke 19, 28 and 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage, Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, and where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, 
the Lord has need of it. So those who went, who were sent went away and found it just as they were told. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had been seeing, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, What would that you, sorry, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day that things, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let me pray. Father God, as we dive into this concept of your sovereignty tonight, and how uh, the whole world rests on your story, Lord, I pray that you give us clarity. Uh, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just know things in our head, uh, but Lord, it would relate to our heart in the way that we interact with the world around us. Uh, Lord, draw us close to you tonight as we dive into the section on your triumphant entry. Your son's name. Amen. So I'm going to give you three fill-in-the-blanks tonight. Well, they're not three fill-in-the-blanks. They're your three bullet points. The first bullet point is this. The Lord's sovereignty over possessions. Second one is this. The Lord's sovereignty over worship. And the third one is the Lord's sovereignty over salvation. So let me dive into the first topic. The Lord's sovereignty over possessions. Some of you know this. You're from Dallas. Jerry Jones is the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. He is one of the most powerful men in the NFL. Because he has not just created a football team, he has created a football culture. He is credited for not just making Dallas a football culture, but his contributions go to making America a football culture. He himself negotiated TV deals that brought football into the living rooms of every American while patting his pocket, along with the pockets of every other NFL player. TV sales drove up player salaries and propped up the sport as a whole. Jerry Jones, believe it or not, will actually be inducted into the Hall of Fame this year for one of the, that being one of his many reasons. When Jerry Jones walks into AT&T Stadium or the Star in Frisco, which is where the practice facility is, he is greeted with a smile. And when he walks into the reception desks and he asks for a pen to sign an autograph for a fan, um, the receptionist gives him the pen. And... If Jerry so chooses, he doesn't give it back. You see, if he were to ever go and get food at AT AT&T Stadium, I know, we're really stretching it here. Jerry has his food delivered. Okay, but let's say he goes 
with the plebeians out into get the food at the stadium. And Jerry asks for a pretzel. They give Jerry a pretzel. And he doesn't have to open his wallet. They just give Jerry the pretzel. And if Jerry goes, I'd like a side of queso with that. They go, Jerry, here's your hot cheese. And they don't charge him anymore for it. If Jerry wants to go talk to the star quarterback of the Cowboys, Dak Prescott, sorry, Tony. (laughs) He He just walks into the locker room and goes up and talks to Dak Prescott. Why? Why? Why can he take the pen? Why can he eat all the fake nacho cheese he wants? Why can he just walk wherever he pleases? Because he's the king. Because he owns the Cowboys. While the pen was given to the receptionist for the receptionist to use, if the owner wants the pen, the owner gets the pen. The receptionist doesn't put up a fight because ultimately it's Jerry's pen. If he wanted a salted pretzel, he gets a salted pretzel. If he asks for cheese dip and to dip the salted pretzel into, he gets the cheese and no extra charge. Why? Because it's Jerry's cheese, Jerry's pretzel, and Jerry's salt. Jerry's salt. Yeah. No one stops him from going into the locker room for the same reason no one typically stops you from going into your own bedroom. Because it's your room. It's Jerry's room. Some of you, when you go to summer camp, are wise and you put on your towel and your clothes, you say, property of, in your name. That The, the pretzel, the pen, the, the Jerry's World Stadium, it's all got his name on it. It's Jerry's. No one stops him. But Jerry just owns some football-related memorabilia. Jesus is Lord of it all. So it's not a surprise when Jesus says, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as they told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. He is sovereign over all creation, sovereign over all the time. That's why, without going into a village, he knows that there will be a cult tied up. He knows that the owners are going to wonder, what on earth are these two men doing with my donkey? And he knows that all they have to say to them is that the Lord needs it. I mean, can you imagine the scene? You and your buddy are eating dinner. And suddenly two strangers walk up and start untying your colt. Outside your house. Hey, buddy. May I ask you what you're doing with my donkey? (laughs) Now, the Gospels don't include... Oh, and and the response is, the Lord needs it. Now, the Gospels don't include the response to the owners of the donkey. Which probably means their silence was the response. Which probably means they were thinking one of two things. First thing they might have been thinking. The Lord needs it, huh? Well, he might be disappointed riding on a colt that has never been ridden on before. This shouldn't be difficult at all for him. Sure, take it. Colt will be back by midnight. Because you don't want to ride on a colt that's never been trained to be. You see the potential problem here. Go to the pastures around here. 
where there are young foals, those are young horses, try to get on the back of one. See what happens. Okay? They might not be too happy. Let alone a donkey. They're awful. Okay? So that's one thing that could have been taken. Or, second thing they could have been taken is they know exactly who the Lord is. They know these two guys. Hey, I think you work for Jesus. Sure. That's the other thing that probably could have happened. Well, they gave him the donkey, much like the receptionist gives Jerry John a pen, or the pretzel guy gives Jerry Jones a pretzel, because it's Jesus's to begin with. Come to think of it, Jesus didn't know much, did he? He even mentions it in Luke 9, 58. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Think about it, he's always given stuff. His place of birth wasn't his own. It's given to him. The wine for his first miracle, not his water. The bread and the fish to feed the 5,000 people, not his. The drink from the woman at the well, given to him. Even his own tomb, at the end of the day, was given to him by another guy. He seems to be super not worried about material things, which might happen if all the material things are yours anyways. Jesus is sovereign over possessions because he possesses all things. Two, the Lord's sovereignty over worship. Most of you don't know who the Gaither vocal band is. Okay? And that's fine. You're under the age of 60. <laughs> I've been to two of their shows. And I'm here to report that I was the youngest guy in the audience of both. They're essentially a barbershop quartet. Uh, they do men's uh, songs, style groups, southern gospel, and acapella work. They've been in existence for over 30 years. Longer than I've been alive, these guys have been singing. Okay? And not only that, but they got new guys coming in and out of their group all the time. Because when you do something for 30 years, sometimes people get tired. And so one guy leaves and another guy comes in. And I say what I'm about to say, and I want you to understand this. That I love you very, very much. But... If Mr. Gaither called me up and offered me a spot on the Gaither vocal band, the only way you would probably see me again is if you tried to break my record for being the youngest people in the choir. I mean, in the audience. I'm gone. I love me some four-part harmony. And I don't care that every concert venue that I go to smells a little bit like Ben Gay and Prunes. I don't, I don't care that I'm sponsored by the AARP or Next Life Nursing Home, but I get to sing Southern Gospel with Bill Gaither. Mm. But let me tell you something. I have made it a point to sing louder than anyone else in the audience at those concerts. <laughs> Which isn't hard because most of the rest of the audience gets winded halfway through. <laughs> and they still haven't called. <laughs> I talk to friends who know them. Oh, man. And Bill still hasn't called. You see, the only way I get to be in the Gaither vocal band is if Bill Gaither makes the decision. It's his band. It's his group. Jerry Jones doesn't even get to decide who sings with him. Bill determines who sings, not the pastor at whatever church they are visiting, not the producer, but Bill. Here we are seeing people telling Jesus who can sing. And what they can say. You wonder where worship wars might have started. Well, Pharisees weren't part of the church, but we might, have, might well trace it back to here. 
where you got the disciples singing about Jesus. And as he rode along, his brother cloaks on the ground. And as he was drawn near, already on the way to the down of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It doesn't say that Jesus told them to spread their cloaks on the road or on the donkey. I think it's clear that the disciples simply know Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It is clear to them that this is the moment where the king has returned home to Jerusalem. And at this distinct time, Passover, I could spend a whole sermon on that, which I might in the coming weeks, because it's Passover that he gives his life. From all over the empire, people are arriving to Jerusalem for this special time. Many of them have heard of Jesus, and some of them have even seen him work his miracles. It wouldn't be surprising if some of the same people he interacted with throughout the Gospel of Luke are on the road here, laying down palm branches at his feet, singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, all of Jerusalem didn't turn out for this processional. They all knew who was coming. And Jesus, notice this, he allows them to worship him. He allows them. This humble man allows the people to call him what? King. To sing to him the way they sing to their God. Why? Because he is both their God and king. He allows this instant self-revelation. And when the Pharisees see it, they see it as blasphemous. Now, why do they see it as blasphemous? Because if he isn't God and he isn't the king, then it is blasphemous. And they try to shut it down. But Jesus toys with them, saying that if they do not call out, the rocks would. Why would the rocks cry out? Well, think about it. Because of point one, Jesus owns all things. And he will call who he wants to worship him. Point two. So what does he call them to? Point three, the Lord's sovereignty over salvation. As the crowds praise him, Jesus enters the city and weeps for the crowds. That's weird. And you just had like people singing your names. This is this should be. I mean, I don't know about you. I've walked one red carpet in my life. Well, maybe that was a dream. Either way, <laughs> people taking pictures of me singing my name, like singing songs about me. I'd probably be in a pretty good mood. I don't know about you. But he sits there on a colt and weeps over his city. Why? Because they don't get it. They don't... I don't get what he's trying to do. Remember, we talked about it last week. They, they were looking for a Messiah. It's not like this is a curveball out of left field. Like, everything's lining up. Okay, Messiah's coming. Not because they think he's the Messiah, but they think that if he's going to be the Messiah, then he's going to kick off the Romans and make it all better. Whatever that means, jazz hands. What better? Right? You see, Israel wanted a specific type of Messiah. You can write that down. That's probably good. They wanted a specific type of Messiah. They wanted an earthly king. We're about to get into it. We got into it a little today with Saul. It's like, have you not learned your lesson? You want another earthly king. 
Did you, did you see what happened last time? You've read the same books I have. They wanted an earthly king, one that would handle their problems like David did. One that would put the Romans in their place, which is second class citizens compared to the people of God. They wanted a leader who would turn away all the enemies of Israel. They wanted Jerusalem to be made the greatest city in the world. They wanted the external problems of life to be solved without the internal problems dealt with. How do we fall into the same category? They wanted the external problems of life dealt with without the internal problems being solved. And think about it. This idea of solving external problems before dealing with internal problems, namely sin, is almost humorous. Look at the whole Old Testament. Look at the scriptures these people had. You want to read the whole Old Testament? That's fine. Let me give you the footnotes. It's the same thing over and over again. Step one. A. Things are going well for God's people because of following God. Life is good. B. The people stop following God. C. He disciplines them. D. They repent. E. Repeat steps A through D over and over and over. Garden. Abraham. Joseph. Moses. Josh. I mean, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. And it doesn't stop. We can look at those people humorously. Every story has the same issue. They want life easy for them. They want life fun. They're more focused on their happiness than their holiness throughout the whole Old Testament. It's why they turn from, to other gods so quickly, because holiness is hard. And while it's easy to mock the people of the Old Testament and mock the people of Jerusalem who are falling again to the same trap, we do this too. We do it all the time, don't we? God, if you would fix this person, and I mean fix them, because they need it, then my life would be better. Instead of dealing with my sin internal issues or their sin internal issues, we just want to deal with the symptoms instead of the actual problem. We do this all the time. Things are going well. Our spiritual life is like at an eight or a nine. Why? Because there's always room for improvement, right? And then we forget about him for a couple of days, weeks, years. And then if you are one of God's, he disciplines you, you repent. And then it's just a slightly, hopefully, less cycle than the one before. Why? Because we want salvation to be easy. We want it to be our way. The Jews wanted a king to fix their external problems. And we want a savior who makes us home in our hearts. And then we just stop sinning. That's what we want at the end of the day, right? Like Jesus come into my life. And I just want comfort and peace. I don't want to deal with sin. I don't want to deal with you can fill in the blank. Because you're thinking about it right now. That's what we want. We want salvation to be a cinch. Get this. Have you realized that this salvation thing, this sanctification thing, this Jesus thing is hard? Intentionally? God is good. And he made this hard. And have you considered that you might be going through trials? You might be learning to lean into your faith for the very purpose of making you more like him. But we doubt. We just want it easier. Because we want to be the sovereign over our own salvation. We surely don't want God in charge of it. Right? Like our issues that we deal with all the time. I mean, I know I'm guilty of it. 
I'm like, Lord, I got a wonderful plan for my life and I'd love you to implement it. And when things don't go my way, I can be a little bit of a baby. Okay? The key is to continue to run to the Lord in the midst of that. It's okay to be honest. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to be in pain. It's okay to be all those things. But the purpose is in the midst of the pain, in the midst of all of it, you lean in to Christ. Because God is in charge of it. It's why when the Pharisees had turned their back on the God of their fathers and turned Passover into a time where people could buy and sell goods in the temple, Jesus knocks the table over. This is your only fill in the blanks day. I know. I made it really hard on you. We are quick to try to make God our cosmic vending machine who is more worried about our comfort than our conformity to his will. More about our pleasures than his passion. More about love for self than selfless love. We are quick to try to make God our cosmic vending machine who is more worried about our comfort than our conformity to his will. More about our pleasures than his passion and more about our love for self than our selfless love. But that is not our God. That is not our God. God is about us and he is about his worship because that is the best thing for us. To be drawn to him to use our possessions and our voices to worship him for our salvation. In closing, let's see how we add all these together. Pastor Bob Deffenbaugh, uh, Bob Deffenbaugh, he's a pastor down in Richardson. Uh, I was reading one of his sermons on the topic this week. He said this, if Jesus was Lord, that is God, then not only does he possess the right to possess man's possessions and the right to possess man's praise and worship, he also has the right to institute his kingdom in the way he sovereignly chooses, rather than by those means which men might prefer. Concerning your possessions, do you live more like your stuff is yours, or do you live more like your stuff is God's? Do you live more like yourself is yours, or do you live more like your stuff is God's? And I'm talking not just about like Preston's shoes, okay? I'm not talking just about that, right? I'm talking about your time, your talents, and your treasures. So your possessions are not just some material thing. Concerning worship, do you worship in ways that you only feel comfortable? Do you worship in ways that you only feel comfortable? Well, I don't like this song, AJ, so I'm not going to sing it. (laughs) Have you ever considered that it might be God's favorite song? Well, I don't like speaking corporately during service. It's weird. Have you considered that this is how God's people responded for thousands of years? Mm -hmm. Because your faith is more interpersonal than it is personal? We forget that. Faith is more interpersonal than it is personal. Well, I don't like to sing. Not a good singer, AJ. Not like you. (laughs) (laughs) Or Olivia. Very humble, AJ. Do you sing happy birthday at a party for someone you love? No. (laughs) You should. You should. Why? 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 Because it's your way of honoring them. 
It has nothing to do with your voice. It has everything to do with you showing them affection. And here's the great part. God doesn't need your affection to make him happy. But humbling yourself to song helps remind you that it's not about you. You are vulnerable when you sing. And maybe that's what that's about, being vulnerable. We'll talk about it in major. Well, AJ, I, there's your problem. I. It's not about you. It's about the great I am. <laughs> Concerning salvation. And I don't like this part. This week has been thinking this week, and then he talked about it all weekend. Do you trust the Lord is bringing about your salvation to completion? Are you leaning into your faith, or do you run from it because at the end of the day, you just don't trust God? And that's on you. Turn from your sin. What is it about your life that you are dissatisfied with that you blame God for? What is it about your life that you're dissatisfied with that you blame God for? You think life shouldn't be hard or painful at times. It's supposed to be easy. What book are you reading? Second Hesitations? You will suffer loss, you will suffer pain, you will suffer. Peter addresses this directly in 1 Peter 4, 12-19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, point two, that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory of the God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or of any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear the name. For it is the time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. We have so much more coming to us in the days to come. Suffering produces two things. One, it produces, produces perseverance. And two, it produces justice, gifts, and the world to come. James 1, 2, 3, 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And the promises of heavenly gifts are beautiful in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light monetary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So live a life in view of the sovereign. Like the queen on her world tour, may we take much of their visit to us. And may we make much of our Savior who dwells within us. Let us put our possessions, our worship, and our trust in the right place. I'll end with this quote from Bob Duffingham from Duffingbob, not Duffingham, different guy, from uh, the pastor I quoted earlier. It's not like we're Israel. For if we have received Jesus as our Savior, we have received him as our Lord, as our God, and as our Savior. We have come to acknowledge him as the King of the earth, whose kingdom will soon be established on the earth. Why, then, are we failing to practice those things which declare his prerogatives as king? We say that he is Lord, and yet we resist letting loose of our possessions, so that his kingdom may be furthered. 
We say he is Lord, and yet we are reluctant to praise him as we ought. When we come to church, or even when we come to worship service, so often our religion is self-serving as, as was that of Israel. We think of ourselves, think of ourselves, and ignore him who is our God and creator and our redeemer. We think of his kingdom today in much the same terms as did the disciples of Jesus' day. We think in terms of the power and prestige we will have rather than in terms of praise he should have. We look for miracles and wonders and we want to see Jesus overcome our enemies. But we do not think of a cross, of suffering or shame or rejection by men. We want our religion to be one that is self-serving rather than one that calls for self-sacrifice. But if Jesus is both Lord and Christ, then he must have his prerogatives. He will have his prerogatives. He should possess our possessions, our praise, and our submission to his ways to bring about his purposes.